0: The church's music from the 2nd century
1: Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and
0: truth. The 6th century we'll today, we'll The 12th century 16th century The 21st century The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years LutheranPublicRadio.org
1: Questions from children. Can you be gay and seriously consider yourself a Christian? And what about making the sign of the cross? Is it just a Catholic thing? Why do Lutherans do it too? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time for part eight of our series, Kids Have Questions. We'll deal with some sexuality and identity questions and a few on the life of the church. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us. He's pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back.
2: Hey, thanks, Todd, I'm glad to be here.
1: Picking up on questions of sexuality and identity, here is our first one. Is loving or being with the same gender committing adultery?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the first thing, just before I dive in, you're gonna notice in my answer, And this is the way people often ask questions, kids and adults the same way. And so the first thing we need to do is, and if you're in a personal conversation, it's a little bit easier. But if you're just answering a question in the learning journal, you have to do it a little differently. But basically, we need to clarify what we're talking about because people don't always say exactly what they mean right away. So you'll you'll notice in my answer, I'm going to say, well, it depends what you mean by that. And then I'll go on to answer kind of two questions, depending upon what's actually being asked. But it's important in conversation with people because Just human nature is such that it's very clear in our mind what we're thinking, but doesn't always come out clearly in the way we ask the question. So being a good listener, sometimes we have to ask for clarification to make sure we're going to actually answer the question that's being asked. So here's what I say to the kid. Great question. It depends what you mean by loving or being with. Two friends of the same sex can love each other and be or be roommates. For instance, love doesn't have to have anything to do with sex. But if you're asking about two same-sex people engaging in sexual activity, this would not be adultery per se, it would be sexual immorality, homosexuality, and fornication. No matter what word we use to describe it, it is contrary to what God has called good and is therefore sin. And this goes for any sexual act that is contrary to what God has called good. And God has called marriage between one man and one woman good sex then is reserved for this good union okay so that's where the answer ends for the child but for listeners it's important to see how words matter what do we mean by loving or being with and the definition of those words or the way the person is using those words will affect our answer so same-sex friends right that's all good but if we're speaking about same-sex sexual relationships then we're speaking about sexual immorality at that point. Now, here's the question. This is really important. So this is one of those sort of foundational questions. If you get this right, the rest will follow. So how do we know what is sexually immoral? That's a really important question. First of all, we don't and we cannot look to our desires no matter how intense they may be because, and this is key, because our desires could be wrong. So all of us have to ask ourselves this question, and this is probably a difficult one to ask, but we absolutely have to ask it. Is it possible that I could desire something sinful? Is that possible? Now, if we're taking scripture seriously at all, the answer is yes. So that means we cannot look to our desires. We have to ask, and this is the question that the way I like to phrase it, we have to ask what God has called good. And then we have to accept that anything that opposes what God has called good is by definition immoral. So again, the very simple but profound question we need to be regularly asking in these sorts of questions is, what has God called good? And then we ask, well, where do we look to discover what god has called good and as it turns out you don't have to go very far in the bible to see what god has called good genesis 1 and genesis 2 right he called male and female good he called the union of this male and female in marriage good he called the blessing of children within this one flesh union good he never calls same-sex sexual unions good, ever. So a few books that I recommend for people who wanna do a little more reading on this and thinking on this, a couple are very short, some are a little bit longer. So if you want a shorter treatment, Kevin DeYoung has, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It's very accessible, very quick read, but he does his homework and he relies very heavily on, I think, one of your former guests you've had on before, Robert Gagnon. You've had him on several times, I think. Truly, uh, he has a wonderful resource, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. And that one's really a, a thick work and very scholarly. So I, I would say if, if you would want more kind of the lay treatment, go with the Kevin DeYoung book. But if you really want to dig into some deep stuff, go with Gagnon. And then a couple other books I would recommend. Christopher Yuan's book, Out of a Far Country, he tells his personal story and his journey into embracing an identity, which he would have used, he would have used the term gay, a gay identity as who he was. He fully embraced that and fully believed it. And the question is, what changed his mind? Now, I won't answer the question because the book is such a page-turner, it's well worth your read, Out of a Far Country by Christopher Yuan, and I've actually written a brief article on our webpage, and that's called Rescuing Identity from Sexuality. That'll be, I think, probably one of the links that you'll share, but that's just kind of the Cliff Notes version of it. And then maybe a really foundational one also would be the one by Anderson and George, What is Marriage? A Defense. That's really a thoughtful work. So if you want to do some more reading on that, I would really recommend that, but Here's what I wanna go on with, because this is this is important. What do we do if we discover that we have desires that are at odds with what God calls good? Because the reality is we are going to find these, whether we're talking about sexual desires or not. We are all going to find that we have desires that are at odds with what God calls good. What do we do? Well, I think we know. We pray to God for mercy. We go to church. We ask for forgiveness and we receive it. Now for the church, this is important. We don't condemn people who have sinful desires that are just different than ours. Now, let me make sure I'm being clear on this because my point is we all have desires that are out of line with what God has called good. All of them, some of them are sexual, some of them are other kinds of desires, but we all have them. So we all stand under the same sentence. And that means we all need the same gospel and the same savior. So I think we need to be very intentional about extending hospitality to those who are struggling with these sorts of sins. Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, is an excellent example of that. And when she tells her story of the hospitality she received, which was part of what brought her out of identifying as a lesbian. But again, the thing for all of us to remember in this conversation, this is so foundational, We don't want to set aside a certain set of desires and treat them like they're this special or or unique kind of desire no not really we all have deep-seated desires and many of them they're at odds with what god calls good i mean this this is like the definition of what it means to be fallen right to be bent inward on ourselves to have desires that are that are warped this shouldn't surprise any of us and If you battle with any sinful desires, you know some of these desires can be really strong. So this clearly calls for great empathy and great compassion. But what we cannot do, what we absolutely cannot do, is redefine what is good. We cannot bend good to our desires, no matter how strong our desires are. Why? This is key. One, it deafens us to the call to repentance. Now look, I know the call to repentance is hard. I mean, if you're taking scripture seriously, it requires our death. That's hard, but it does more than that. It actually robs us of the gospel because it radically distorts the gospel into a message of affirmation instead of salvation. See, salvation is not affirmation. Salvation is rescue. Salvation is forgiveness. Salvation is new life in Christ, not affirmation of our desires. So to put this bluntly, God didn't give the gospel to affirm us. He gave the gospel to save us. I think I'll just probably stop there. I'd probably go the rest of the afternoon.
1: Another question, actually, a series of questions. In the Guinness Book of World Records, it says two males had a child. How do they say that that is true? Do you think that Because our culture is falling apart, the new earth is coming soon. Our old neighbors had a child. She said she had three moms. How does that work? My friend said there is a transgender person in the neighbor's house. What are furries exactly?
2: Okay, don't you love that? Okay, this is the way kids ask questions sometimes. Like, if you're a parent, sometimes your kid won't say anything to you for hours, and then suddenly you get this paragraph long question, and there are five or six questions in there. In fact, this is sometimes how adults ask questions. I have people come in my office to ask a question, and they have this paragraph of questions. And so you kind of have to say, okay, well, whoa, we just shot a lot of things at once there. Let's work through them one at a time. So that's what I'm gonna do in the answer. You're gonna hear me work through them one at a time, but I appreciate that you asked the whole paragraph question and listeners you're hearing that going, wow, that's a lot of questions, but that's exactly right. And I also want people to understand this is how the learning journals work with kids. They write down some of the just most unconnected questions sometimes, or these paragraph long questions that, I have to sort through and work through. And I think it's a wonderful thing because they're just sharing what's on their heart and what's on their mind. And the number of things referenced in that one question that this child has encountered over the last week, that's a lot, but I think it's true to life. So I love the question and I'm gonna work through it. Obviously, there's a lot in the question, so it'll be a little bit longer of an answer, but I think it's worth it. so uh, I spend quite a bit of time answering these uh, kids' questions. Okay, so I say, wow, that's a lot of questions. And I put a big smiley face. All right. Then I say, okay, in regards to the Guinness record, I don't know exactly what they're talking about. Here's the short answer, though to produce a child, you need a sperm produced by a male and an egg produced by a female. Men cannot produce eggs, women cannot produce sperm. So two men simply cannot. conceive a child now a man and a woman who identifies as a man can that's not really two men that's a man and a confused woman so perhaps that's what was going on do i think the new earth is coming soon yes but not because our culture is worse than others the more you read of history the more you see that our culture isn't really that unique in our messed upness having said that We are to be ever watchful for Christ's coming. Now, the girl next door, she only had one mom. There may have been other women providing some sort of motherly oversight over her, but they were not, strictly speaking, her mom. Only one woman provided the egg that was fertilized by a sperm. So she may have regarded three women as somehow motherly, but she only had one mom. Now, a transgender person is someone who believes something about reality that isn't true. They are confused or seeking attention or seeking escape or seeking affirmation, but their beliefs about reality don't actually define reality. So a furry is someone who believes he is a cat or dog. Now that's obviously impossible, but it's the same principle. If our beliefs about reality actually do define reality, then you can believe whatever you want to believe and it becomes quote unquote real. So I can believe I'm an airplane in principle, but obviously that's silly. I can no more be an airplane than I can be seven or Chinese or six foot seven inches tall. My beliefs about reality don't actually define reality. Reality doesn't care what I believe. So if my beliefs about reality are out of line with reality, the way a person can help me is by helping me get my beliefs in line with reality. So that's the answer to the child. And again, for listeners, I want people to appreciate, number one, the curiosity of these kids, but also the the immensity of the questions they're asking and why these learning journals are so important. Because... Being able to ask that question in class may be difficult for some kids because kids kind of feel self-conscious about, well, maybe I'm supposed to know the answer to this, but I don't, and I don't know how to ask this in class, or maybe it wasn't what we were talking about in class at all. So the Learning Journal gives them a place to do that. Now, let me unpack what I said because there's really a lot in there. And I wanna spend just a few minutes unpacking that for all of our listeners, because I know full well, that these questions, they're not unique to this child because I've been doing this long enough. I get these questions very frequently, both from children and from adults. But for our purposes, for now, for answering, reality really is a certain way. I think that's a very important point to make. It's foundational. I like to use the phrase, reality has edges. That's the phrase I often use with my kids. They can quote it to you, all right? Reality has edges. So for example, If I took my glasses off, my perception of reality would change dramatically because I have very bad vision. And if I tried to drive you somewhere in my van, my minivan, you'd realize just how different my view of reality was. And if you cared about me, not to mention caring about your own life, you'd tell me how reality was you tell me, Hey, that color blob up there that you think is a flowering bush. That's actually an SUV stopped in your lane. So reality really is a certain way. Beliefs don't determine reality ever. We don't live that way ever. We know that doesn't work in every other area of life. We know that doesn't work. I just give you one example, but let me give you a couple more examples. So if I believe I'm seven, are you gonna let me enroll in your daughter's second grade class? Are you gonna let me play basketball on your your son's basketball team? Or if I believe I'm six foot seven inches tall, are you gonna point me to the big and tall clothing section? I'm only six feet tall. There's no way you're pointing me to the big and tall. Or if I believe I'm 65, are you gonna give me the senior citizen discount? I'm only 45. If I believe I have eight children and my wife and I have six children, but if I believe I have eight, are you gonna give me a tax break? for eight children? And if I believe I'm the president of the United States, are you going to give me the nuclear codes? Really, are you? And does love require you to affirm my sincerely held beliefs? Or does love require you to speak truth to me, to help me align my beliefs with reality? Let me give you another example. There's a a small assortment of people in our world and in our culture that identify as now that I think the term is transabled. I think it used to have the the phrase uh, body integrity identity disorder. The point is they see themselves as blind even though their eyes work or as a paraplegic even though their legs work and their desire is to align their bodies with their beliefs. So they want to sever their optic nerve or to amputate their legs. So here's the question. Would you do it? Would that be loving? Now it would align their bodies with their deeply held beliefs, but does love require you to do that? I mean, there are doctors who are doing that. So what about transgenderism? It's just a different part of the body. Again, here's the question. Is it loving to mutilate a healthy body to align with a person's beliefs? It's not more loving to help a person accept reality as it is, as it is to align their beliefs with reality, right? I mean, what I'm saying is, shouldn't we be trying to help them align their beliefs with reality and to accept that their body is a good gift from God? Wouldn't that be the loving thing to do? Doesn't love require us to do what is good for our neighbor, not to affirm their desires or their beliefs? And one final thought. I think this is so important in this conversation. And I have to share because I hear this done wrong so often in our culture. So here's the final thought. There are lots of different ways to be a man or a woman, to express masculinity or femininity. Our culture has put up these rigid stereotypes of man and woman. And it's telling people, if you don't match this stereotype, then, well, you must not be a man or a woman. You must be the opposite. So, for example, when Bruce Jenner did his Vanity Fair splash, I think it exposed all this. It was basically saying, this is what it means to be a woman, to fit some sexualized, objectified shape. And women who are listening, if you were offended by that, you had the right response. That was very offensive. It was very anti-woman a man dressed up in suggestive attire telling you that that's what it means to be a woman, that's incredibly offensive and it's incredibly anti-woman. So what we need to say to people who are struggling with or being pressured by the trans ideology is this, your body is not wrong. The stereotypes are wrong. There are thousands of ways to be a male or female, right? I mean, some men like hunting and some men like writing. Some women like dresses. Some women prefer jeans. Some men enjoy the smell of oil and grease. Some men enjoy the smell of flowers. Some women are slender and petite. Some women have bigger bones. They can all be these beautiful and meaningful expressions of male and female. So I think we can do a better job of debunking the stereotypes in our culture and celebrating the good gift of the body. And I'll stop there or I might just keep going.
1: We will answer the question Can you be gay and seriously consider yourself a Christian? in our series Kids Have Questions with Pastor Jonathan Connor next. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal Subscription button at IssuesETC.org.
3: LCMS Worship invites you to attend the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music July 9th through the 12th in 2024 at Concordia University, Nebraska. The theme is Songs of Deliverance, the Psalms, and the Great Congregation. Everything you need to know is at LCMS.org slash and we're now accepting presenter proposals through September. Go to lcms.org slash worship institute. God's mission right where you are.
0: Pumpkin spice-flavoured everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Cruesome's mugs, featuring your favourite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses or Christian humour. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practised here. Visit AdCruesome.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. St. Peter encourages us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Renssel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org slash witness or visit our website witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.
3: Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues, etc.
1: Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.
3: Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity,
2: and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world— He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.
1: Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Cetera. It's our series Kids Have Questions. We are dealing with questions of sexuality, identity, and a little later, the life of the church. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas offers interactive online classes for high school students worldwide. They also offer brick-and-mortar classical Lutheran education for pre-K through 12th grade Learn more at flsplano.org, Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. Pastor Connor, here's another one. Can you be gay and seriously consider yourself a Christian?
2: Oh, isn't that a great question? I mean, I think that's such a a powerful question. I think it's one that many of us have asked, and I'm going to take a little time and work through that, because this is the question our kids are struggling with, all right? so First I say, great question. Let's start, I say, by rewording the question. Now for listeners, I'm gonna pause for a second. This is critical. What I'm gonna do here, and I do this a lot with people, we need to make sure we're using our words very carefully. So I'm gonna read this answer slowly, then I'm gonna expand upon it because this is really key in these sorts of conversations, okay? So I say, let's start by rewording the question. We don't describe people as gay because that is adopting a sexualized word on which to found identity. Instead, we would speak of a male or female with same sex attraction. So here we are grounding identity in the creational language that God used. Start with creation. So specifically the words of the creator, and then, get to the creature's desires so the answer goes on now can a person have same-sex desires and still be a christian well can a person have the desire to get even with his brother and still be a christian yes the issue here is whether we embrace those desires and claim that they are good if a person embraces desires that are contrary to what god has called good and they actively live in them and sees no need to repent of them, then they would be deceiving themselves if they call themselves Christian. A Christian honors Christ. One who embraces something that opposes what Christ has called good cannot honor Christ. Okay, so the answer stops there, but this is so important. And if I could get one message out to the church on the way to speak about these issues, it would be this. Don't use the world's words. Don't use their words. Use God's words. Now, I didn't say use God's word. I mean, yes, I mean that, but I'm actually saying use God's words, the actual words he used. Using the world's words, it accepts their framework, because the world is defining people in sexual terms. I mean, this is like Freud and Kinsey's dream, right? We are sexual beings. This is their dream. We we should not use those words. Now it is true that sex is a part of our being. It's a part of our human experience, but it's too small to capture the human being. So we don't use sexualized terms to define people. We use God's words. Male, female. Then you can follow along here. Male, female, then we discuss desires. So a male with same-sex desires, a female with same-sex desires, etc. Creation first, then we discuss desire. Creational identity first, then desires. So here's the question, going back to the child's question. Can a man with same sex desires be saved? Well, can a man with selfish desires be saved? Can a man with adulterous desires be saved? Can a man with greedy desires be saved? Well, the answer better be yes, or we are all in trouble because We all desire that which opposes what God has called good. Now notice what we're doing here again. We are not setting up a special classification of sin and desire and putting it off the side and say, well, those are special. No, we we need to stop making them special. They are intense, they are real, but what's happened is we've already accepted the world's term, their terms, that identity is grounded in sexualized terms. That's the wrong place to start. God doesn't start there. So we need to start with his words. But going back to the concern, okay, with can someone who is gay consider themselves Christian? The question is, here's where we wanna drive the question. Can someone be saved who actively embraces as good that which opposes what God has called good? Can a person be saved who calls sin good, who embraces sin and scorns repentance? Can a man who calls adultery good and practices it be saved? And, I mean, that's a question we need to answer. That, that helps see what we're getting after here. Can that man who is calling adultery good and practicing it, can that man consider himself Christian? Can a man who calls stealing good and practices it, can he call himself Christian? Can a man who calls dominating his wife good and practices it be saved? I mean, what does Paul say over in 1 Corinthians 6? What's he start with? Do not be what? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, right? And he goes on from there. No men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What's his focus on? What's his emphasis? Those practicing, those embracing, those celebrating, affirming, endorsing these things, those things are not good. Those who are calling those things good, those who are practicing these things, Paul is very clear. He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They cannot call themselves Christian. It's like trying to go east and west at the same time. You can't do both. But remember, Paul goes on from there, he doesn't stop there. He says, and such were some of you but you were washed, this baptismal language, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So he's saying, we were justified, and I like to use the word, it's not a real word, but it gets at the heart of what Paul is saying, you were righteous you were righteous made righteous in the name of Jesus. That's the declaration, that's the promise, that's the gospel, that's the good news for every man and. Every woman on the planet, no matter what desires they have. So I, I think that's key. We need to really get after creational language first. Then we evaluate desires. But when we accept the world's terms, what we've done is we've just connected in an inextricable way desires with identity. And that's really confusing us. So we're going to separate those and start with creational identity first. And then we can start to. Evaluate desires. We have to get identity right first, and then we can talk about desires.
1: Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series Kids Have Questions. We'll move on to the life of the church and what happens when a pastor passes away next. Do you long for a church where the gospel of the sinner's free justification is front and center, and yet where a robust sacramental life is confessed and lived? Do you long for a church that rejoices in the sacred scriptures as the sole basis for the church's teaching and proclamation, yet values and listens to the witness of the ancient fathers and councils? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We are what you've been looking for. Find a Christ-centered, cross-focused church near you on the Find the Church page at issuesetc.org.
3: To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons, or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. He's leading us through our series, Kids Have Questions. Jonathan, here's one that is pertaining to the life of the church. What happens to the church after a pastor passes away?
2: Yeah, and let me give some context for listeners here. So why would a child ask this question? It's not simply a what-if question. It's a what now question, because this is a lived reality in my context. So just a brief word on that. My congregation, Zion, is in partnership with Trinity Lutheran in Manila, about 10 miles west of us. It's a wonderful partnership. And actually, just as an aside, for those of you who were at our Synodical Convention and you heard talk about the partnership project that's being endorsed by our Synod, I was a part of those conversations and was able to share many of the things that we learned in our partnership endeavor. And so those conversations were very meaningful. I think will prove to be very helpful for many in our Synod as they consider partnerships. So we started that partnership back in 2017. We called a a young pastor out of the seminary, Andrew Johnson, a wonderful, godly man. He loved Jesus. He loved his people, but he had cancer. And he battled it for off and on for the six years as he served at Trinity. And this last April, uh, he died, and now he rests with his Lord in heaven and awaits the coming resurrection. So he was uh, my partner in teaching confirmation as well. So for these kids, they knew him well. They loved him. Many of them had him as their teacher. So, this is not a theoretical question. This is a what happens now question. And so, I'm very sensitive to that in my answer to this question. So, I say, this is a great question. First, they, that is the church, first, they grieve. They acknowledge that death has happened and separated us from one another, but only until Jesus reunites us in heaven and on the new earth Second, they begin the process of replacing him. This is important to understand. The pastor is replaceable. So whether he takes a call and goes to another congregation or dies, eventually he leaves. When this happens, the church begins the process of calling a new pastor to serve in the office of the ministry. So the office of pastor must be filled And the church has a certain way they go about doing that. Trinity will begin that process in the coming months. Okay, so answer ends there. And just to make two simple points out of that. First, they grieve. First, they find ways to express that hurt deep within them. And then to find ways to remember the person they love and now who rests with Jesus. And this this is what all of us do who have someone who dies and we go through this process. Grieving is part of this process. Scripture does not teach that we don't grieve. What it teaches is we don't grieve without hope. And that makes all the difference in the world. We do grieve and what we do in the church is we bear one another's burdens and then together we raise the banner of hope in Jesus Christ. So we grieve and that is a a right response to death. But then second, in the context of the church, then they call because the office needs to be filled. So I have this sort of silly, I don't know if it's silly, but it's, it's a way I'm kind of processing this. Maybe you've heard Paul Harvey's famous poem, So God Made a Farmer, right? You know, And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God made a farmer. Well, I have this refrain that echoes in my head, so God called a pastor and maybe uh one of your listeners todd with a theological understanding of the office could write a poem like this i think it could be really powerful but i think it would sound something like this god looked down on the world he loved and said i need a preacher so god called a pastor God said, I need somebody willing to speak the message of salvation into these people's ears. Somebody willing to pour my word over them in baptism. Somebody willing to feed my word to them in holy communion. So God called a pastor. I need somebody willing to forgive the repentant and call the sinner to repentance. I need somebody willing to teach the young and to exhort the middle aged and to comfort the aged. I need somebody to share their joys and to carry their burdens. I need somebody willing to be on call 24 seven. So God called a pastor. I'd love to hear some of your listeners maybe write a poem like that. I think that could be very meaningful for our church to understand the importance of why God calls pastors. But here's the important thing, because we're talking about the context of when the pastor dies. The pastor fills the office. The pastor may change, and this, this is, I've had this opportunity to share this message with the kids of our two congregations. The faces of ministry, they may change, but the office remains and the office needs a pastor. And I often tell my congregation, I say, someday I won't be your pastor. Either I will leave vertically or horizontally, but someday I won't be in this office here. I will not be your pastor here, and the people of Trinity. And this is just a shout out to my my brothers and sisters in Christ at Trinity. They know this firsthand. They've experienced the vacancy when a pastor leaves horizontally, and that is hard. It's especially hard. This was a young man, thirty two years old, but. The promises that their pastor preached were the promises their pastor believed. So death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does, and his word is life.
1: So what do they do? They grieve, then they call. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You can read Pastor Connor's columns, Rescuing Identity from Sexuality. Do Sincerely Held Beliefs Determine Reality, and Questioning the Unquestioned at IssuesETC.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks a lot, Todd. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Vody Bakum about the truth of God's Word in a post-Christian culture. We'll discuss Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges with Greg Kokel. We'll continue our series, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, with Pastor Will Whedon, and we'll find out from Katie Faust How to Raise Conserved Kids in a Woke City. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.
3: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. You're invited to October Fiesta Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. October Fiesta features authentic Mexican cuisine, desserts from Cruda Bakery, a festive mariachi band, and of course, plenty of Mexican beverages. Tickets are $25. Proceeds benefit St. Paul Lutheran School, the only classical Lutheran school in greater St. Louis. Learn more at school.stpaulhamill.org. October Fiesta is sponsored in part by Ernst Heating and Cooling, Valo Floor Coverings, Seavers Equipment, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, Baker Construction, Bunker Hill Chiropractic, and Lutheran Public Radio. October Fiesta, Friday night, September 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. school.stpaulhamill.org